morning, church. How's everyone doing? Before we move forward with uh, unpacking our sermon text, I want to take a moment to pray for Asa and the Dusan family. As you heard, Asa was rushed to the hospital a few days ago. Surgery went well. So will you please join me right now in praying over the Dusan family? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord. And we ask, God, that your hand would be over Asa, God, as he is healing, Lord. God, we pray for a speedy recovery, Father. I pray for Peter and Elisa, Father, and the Dusan family, God, that you would cover them, God, in peace, Lord. And, Father, that, that you would have favor over them, God, that you would bring joy, God, in this tough time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, if you're new here, welcome out. My name is Alberto Lopez. I serve here as one of the campus ministers. Uh, and if this is your first time here, we want to make this church your church. Uh, so please don't be in any rush to leave. Uh, there's connection cards in the seat back behind you. And if you fill it out and fill it, turn it in at the back, we would love to shake your hand uh, and get to know you. Uh, where we find ourselves today is in week eight of our series, Story of the Bible. Uh, for many people, uh, understanding the story of the Bible is like playing a game of Scrabble or, or words with friends, if that's a thing. Uh, you may be familiar with the letters. Uh, you may be familiar with the alphabet, but sometimes it's kind of hard to put the words together. Uh, me and my wife, we play uh, Game Pigeon like the anagrams and Word Hunt, and I am terrible at this game. Uh, I always come up with words like bro, bet, <laughs> but like three-letter words, I just can't. I can't arrange them correctly, and Morgan is like a genius, and she's always beating me by a lot of points, and I am mad. Uh, in the same way, understanding the story of the Bible is, is like that. We're familiar with, with stories. We're familiar with, with the books. We've heard of Jesus walking on water. We know the terms, the cross, the resurrections, but sometimes it's kind of hard to put it together in a meaningful way. And so what we've been trying to accomplish in this series is show you how the Bible is not just a collection of random stories and good moral teachings, but it's, a, it's one grand story, and it tells one unified story about God and how he created us to be in relationship with him, how we kind of mess things up, and how he has a plan to save us and redeem us and rescue us. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at different plot points in the Bible that start with the letter C. And where we arrive today is at our eighth C, I believe. Let me, let me double check. We'll go with it. Uh, and it's Christ. Did somebody say ninth C? Okay, I'm not counting. Okay, okay. Uh, so we've been, we've been looking. We've been going from Genesis 1 all throughout the Bible, and we started off with creation. So we took a look into the world that God created, and we saw that it was very good. It was awesome. It was amazing. Creation functioned in perfect unity and harmony with the Lord. Uh, humans were in perfect relationship with God. There was no such thing as brokenness and destruction. And we know that that's short-lived because we go from holy creation to brokenness and chaos in chapter 3. And when we disobeyed God, all of a sudden, what was perfect and good becomes broken and chaotic. And in one chapter, we sever our relationship with God, and now we're living in that chaotic and broken world. And one of the reasons why we see chaos and brokenness out there is because there's chaos and brokenness in here. It's in our hearts. 
And so God in his loving kindness doesn't leave us there. In fact, when we wouldn't pursue him, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, he comes to us. And he comes to Adam and Eve and he gives them the first bit of good news in Genesis 3.15 where he sets forth a plan that says, hey, from your lineage is going to come one who's going to make all things right again, who's going to restore us back to God and back to the life that we were intended to live. And that person is Christ. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a moment in Christ's life where he reveals himself to be the long-awaited king and the promised Messiah. And we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 21. And in this moment, we're going to see Christ show up in our brokenness, show up in the chaos, and deliver us from the true enemy, which is sin. And he comes not necessarily by conquering the world, but by saving us from ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, will everyone please open up to Matthew chapter 1, and will everyone stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that as we unpack it, God, that it would come alive in our hearts, Father, and that we would be refreshed and renewed, Father, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So has uh, anyone in here ever been on a really, really long road trip? All right. Show of hands if you've ever done 10 or more hours. Okay, awesome. Let's see, 20 or more hours? Wow. 30? I'm talking about one way. 40? Okay, who had their hand up for 30 hours? Where, where were you going? Okay, that is a lot of driving. Yeah, uh, I drove to North Carolina once, and it took me about 20 hours too, so I feel you. Uh, where we find Jesus in this moment is he is on a really long road trip. 
from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus go from town to town proclaiming the good news. He's been from Egypt to Nazareth throughout a large part of modern Israel, and he's healing and proclaiming the good news in town to town. And so he's making his way to Jerusalem, the capital city. And his purpose for going into Jerusalem is to set into motion uh, the plan from the very beginning that God had made to save the world from sin. And so over a period of eight days, from Matthew chapter 21 to Matthew chapter 28, we see Jesus enter the city, challenge the religious leaders, institute the Lord's Supper. He gets arrested, he's tried, and then he's crucified And then he's raised from the dead. And this right here is the week that all of creation had been waiting for. And it all starts with Jesus riding into the capital. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city. And at this time, what's so amazing is that Jesus is so detailed with the way he works this out. He chooses to come to the capital city during one of the most busiest times on the Jewish calendar. He comes during Passover. Now, Passover was a festival that was uh, meant to celebrate and remind the people of God when God had rescued them from, their, from slavery in Egypt and brought salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Now, Jerusalem had a population of 50,000 people, pretty decent-sized town city, however you like to think about that. And it's estimated that up to 150,000 people from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem during Passover. Now, a good way to think about this is is, is Austin is is right up the street. And if you've ever been to Austin, it feels kind of crowded. There's always traffic. And if you're ever trying to go somewhere, it's kind of hard to park. Now, Austin gets really amazing when South by Southwest comes. Yeah, because it becomes even more crowded. Last year, over up to 176,000 people came to attend the music events at South by Southwest. So imagine up to 170,000 people already occupying a really busy town. It's crowded and it's hectic. And this is when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. So Jesus times his entry during one of the most chaotic times in the capital city. And how does he arrive? The word says that he arrives on a donkey. This is interesting because it says that before they get to Jerusalem, they make a stop in Bethphagi. Now, Bethphagi is a suburb of Jerusalem, and it's probably less than a mile uh, east, southeast of Jerusalem. So a mile walk is probably going to take you about 30 minutes. Uh, In fact, from 421 Springtown Way, from this church to Sewell Park, it's exactly around a mile. And if you were to do the walk, it it would take about 30 minutes. Uh, The other day on Thursday, I was on campus, and the weather was awesome. And I was like, I'll just walk to the church, because I had to be here. And it took about 45 minutes, and then I hated myself for doing it, (laughs) because I was was really tired. Uh, But where Jesus is, is, he's not too far away from the capital city. Up until this point, he's been primarily walking from town to town, and now he's about 30 minutes away from arriving to his destination. And what does he do? He takes a pit stop, and he tells his disciples, go into this village and get a donkey and a colt so I can ride on them into the city. 
Now, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I would be immediately trying to talk him out of that. Imagine that type of awkward interaction. Like, wait, Jesus, you want me to go to this person, ask him for his donkey, and and what do you want me to tell him? And Jesus says, the Lord needs them. Okay, um, you're Jesus, so I'm going to listen to you. But but imagine if that played out today. Uh, Like if I told my wife, hey, babe, we're going to the river, but I want you to go to Chewy's, and there's going to be a guy sitting at the table, and I want you to ask him for his car keys so we can take his car to the river, which is less than a 30-minute walk. And if she asks me, what am I going to tell him? You say, Birdo needs them. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's kind of ridiculous. But what we find out is that Jesus wastes no detail. And with God, even the awkward, weird moments have a lot of meaning. And we're about to unpack that in a minute. And so Jesus rides into the capital city, and what happens next? It says in Matthew 21.8 that the crowd started spreading their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now that can sound kind of strange if we have no context for this. Jesus is riding on a donkey and then all of a sudden people are taking off their clothes and laying it on the ground, cutting down palm branches and spreading, on, spreading it on the road. What does this mean? Well, lucky for us, the Bible helps us interpret the Bible. In your Bible, if you have a footnote uh, in the cross-references, it would say 2 Kings 9.13, where it's referencing a moment in the Old Testament where something like this happened before. King Jehu was one of Israel's many kings. Um, And like a majority of the kings, he had a strong start, uh, but had a terrible finish, ended up compromising in his faith. But when he is set apart to be king, it says in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, that the crowd started laying down their cloaks because they're recognizing that this man is their king. And they start saying, Jehu is king. And in this moment, the same thing is happening. Jesus is riding into the capital city on a donkey, and the crowds are recognizing Jesus as his king. And so how do they respond? They lay out for him a royal red carpet. They lay out for him cloaks and palm branches for him to walk on as he enters the city, symbolizing that we're recognizing this man as our king. Another detail in the story, we see that there's two crowds. One of them I call the loud crowd, and the other is an angry crowd. In Matthew 21, 9, it says that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so like most parades, there's music involved. And this was the song that the crowds were singing as Jesus is riding into the city. They're yelling out, Hosanna which means save us. It comes from Psalm 118, 25. And they're celebrating and they're getting extra excited that the king has arrived. And yet there's another crowd that isn't as enthused. This is the angry crowd. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10 says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Some translations, instead of saying the whole city was stirred up, says that the whole city was in an uproar. 
In fact, that Greek word there is seo, which means to be agitated, to be furious, to be angry. So we have one crowd that is celebrating Jesus as he's making this triumphant entry into the capital. And we have another group that is resenting him. They're angry and they're furious. These 10 verses are marked with very specific details. There's a mention of a donkey, crowds yelling, Hosanna, Jesus arriving uh, in Jerusalem at a very specific time. And there's a saying that God is in the details, and this is used to emphasize the importance of paying careful attention to the tiniest things. Why? Because our amazing creator reigns over every detail. And what this scene helps reveal is what kind of king Jesus is and how God desires to move in our lives. Let's consider the donkey. Now, what seems like a minor detail actually contains quite a bit of significance. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they rode to war, but donkeys if they came in peace. Kings ride on donkeys during times of peace, and this is how Jesus chose to usher in his kingdom. He does not ride in to conquer and bring war. He rides in to bring peace. He does not come to wage war. He comes to make peace. He is a peaceful king. The next thing we see about the donkey is that it reveals that Jesus is the promised king. Not only does Jesus riding in on a donkey represent him ushering in a kingdom of peace, it is also fulfilling scripture that prophesied this moment hundreds of years prior. Zechariah 9.9, this is what Matthew is quoting when he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Now the context for this verse is that God's people had repeatedly seen the tragedy of failed kings. But Zechariah held out on hope, promising a day when a king would send his king when God would send his king. And in Zechariah 9.9, it begins with a note of joy in light of the coming king. It specifies the way he would arrive. And the fulfillment we see is truly amazing. 500 years before Jesus came, God promised that a donkey and a colt would be available the week before Passover for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. The creator, our almighty God, reigns over all the details. Jesus is the peaceful king and the promised king. But there's also another detail that reveals what kind of king Jesus is. When the crowds are yelling out Hosanna, they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. Now that title carries a lot of significance. For starters, this title is a messianic title that was exclusive to the Messiah, to the one who would save us from our sin. And we know that to be Jesus. But when we ask ourselves, what comes to mind when you think of David? Well, David was arguably one of Israel's most famous kings. Uh, We know of his stories. You know, he, he conquered Goliath. He led Israel in several awesome military victories. He delivered his people from the oppression and persecution of the neighboring tribes. So the son of David is not only a messianic title, It's also a militaristic title because this title had militaristic associations. 
the title would have pointed to a conquering Messiah. One who would destroy the enemies of Israel like David did when he destroyed the neighboring enemy tribes that were oppressing this Hebrew nation. And Matthew uses son of David only nine times. Mark and Luke have it three times. And no other New Testament writer uses this term. Because of the strong military association, this title was used sparingly. And I believe one of the reasons why this could be is because in the first century, there existed a political group called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots' political ideology was, we want to overthrow Rome, and we'll do it by any means necessary. They were actually considered to be first century, uh, modern day terrorists because of how violent they would be in their efforts. The Zealots were Judean Jews who sought to overthrow the occupying Roman government. They had a reputation of being forceful. And they believed in going to war, and they believed that God would deliver them. The reasoning went back to the days of David and how God would deliver his people from war. So the zealots were rebels. They would try to rally the people of Israel and say, hey, let's pick up the sword and go to war against our enemy, Rome. Because Rome is oppressing us. They're taking advantage of us. We're suffering under their occupation in our city. Let's overthrow them. And so when they see Jesus riding into the capital city, What could have gone through a handful of people's minds is here comes the guy who's going to lead our rebellion. Here comes the guy who is going to deliver us from our oppression, from Rome, and they maybe thought that he was going to do it by force. So they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Deliver us, Jesus, the same way David delivered us from our enemies by using the sword, by going to war. And this group of people saw an opportunity to probably use Jesus as their political leader and help them overthrow Rome. And so they're yelling, Hosanna. Now, what does this mean? Now, this word is a Greek word for a Hebrew phrase phrase that means save, please. It comes from Psalm 118.25. It's a cry for help. Lord, save us. We're, We're suffering. We're being persecuted. We're overwhelmed by the power of the enemy. Will you come save us? Will you help us? And so this crowd is yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, please. Save us from Rome. Overthrow the government. Save us from the brokenness and the chaos that we're experiencing. And in this case, Rome was a very real threat. It represented, uh, Rome represents the external environment that was oppressing this Hebrew nation. And that's the environment that they were crying out to be saved from. But when Jesus comes riding into the capital city, he's riding in on a donkey, and he's not coming to wage war. He's coming to bring peace. And Jesus does not come to overthrow the government, to remove the enemy out there. He comes to deliver us from the enemy in here. 
He doesn't come to rearrange the external circumstances. He doesn't come to draw out the sword and deliver us from the enemy. He comes to rescue us from the true enemy. And that's our sinful hearts. Because the reason why we're experiencing chaos and brokenness and we see war out there is because there's a war going on in here. And we're filled with brokenness and chaos in here. And it's because we sinned against God. And now we're removed from relationship with him. And we see the effects of that destruction going on inside of us and all around us. And they're yelling out, Hosanna, save us from the enemy. But Jesus comes in and he's saying, I'm going to save you from your sin. So the question that I have for you is that if Rome, in this context, represents this external environment that these people were crying to be saved from, what is Rome in your life? What is your Rome? What is the external environment that you've been crying out to God, Lord, save me from this. Lord, deliver me. Lord, help me. Maybe it's your home environment. Maybe you're feeling the weight of parenting and leading a family and being present, being present with your spouse and you're crying out to the Lord, help me. Like, make these kids stop being fill in the blank, you know, <laughs> wild. Lord, deliver me from the busyness of life so I can budget in some free time so I can stay connected with my wife, with my husband, with my kids. Maybe you're crying out, Lord, save me from my work environment. Maybe you're not the biggest fan of your job and you find yourself slacking and unmotivated and you're dreading going in to work. And you're saying, Lord, save me from here and move me somewhere else. Save me from this environment so that I can go be fruitful and find joy in another place. Maybe it's your school environment. Classes are rough. Come on, somebody. Money is low. And uh, yeah, and you're trying to balance school and you're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus and at the same time battle against the temptation that comes with the college experience. And you're saying, Lord, save me from this environment. Like, I'm just so ready to graduate because once I'm done with classes, I can be more effective in following Jesus. Once I remove myself from the college experience, then I can be a better follower of Christ. And what we see the Lord do when he moves in our lives is that his primary method of changing us and rescuing us is not by rearranging what's out there, but coming after our hearts. And he will use our desires He will use our environment to reveal where our hearts are and show us how he alone can fulfill us, satisfy us, and complete us like no earthly king can. Jesus announces his arrival during one of the most chaotic and busiest times on the Jewish calendar during Passover. 
And remember, this week drew pilgrims from up to 150,000 people from all over the world to be in this place for this time so that they could offer up their animal sacrifices and do their religious duty for the Lord. And it was busy. It was chaotic. In fact, people would sleep in their tents on the streets outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this is when Jesus chooses to come in to the city. During the most chaotic, busy time to a broken, sinful people. And from Matthew chapter 21 to Matthew chapter 28, we see a glimpse of Jesus' last eight days on the earth. And we see him ride into the capital city and work towards this plan of saving us, not by overthrowing Rome, but by conquering death and dealing with our sin on the cross. And how does he arrive? He arrives on a donkey. He arrives in peace to bring peace during the busyness of life and in the midst of chaos. And what we can see here is that when we're overwhelmed by chaos and when we're overwhelmed by the busyness of life and everything seems to be caving in on us and we're crying out to the Lord, save us, when we're consumed with our attitude towards work and school and life, feeling the weight of life, we serve a God who specializes in showing up in chaotic places and bringing peace. In this passage, we see that Jesus comes not as the king we want, but the king we need. He does not come to overthrow the Roman government like the zealots wanted him to. In fact, after Jesus died, the the zealots made their attempt to try to overthrow the government, and it ended up leading to the destruction of this capital city. Rome was not having it. In fact, any time that a rebel would rise up to try to overthrow them, they would be executed on a torture device called the cross. And so the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, the chief priests are stirred up. They're angry. They're in an uproar because they know that this is a busy time for them. It's a sacred week, but it's also one of the most profitable weeks for them. This would be a time where where they would profit off of tourists and pilgrims coming into town and exploit them and take advantage of them and sell them doves and goats and animals so that they could commit their animal sacrifices to the Lord. And Jesus was not having it. And the zealots, excuse me, the Pharisees thought to themselves, here comes another guy who's going to cause an uproar. We need to deal with him. Once and for all. And so they commit a plan to kill him, get him on trial for blasphemy, and then they crucify him, sentence him to a rebel's death by death on a cross. And Jesus knew all of this. In fact, the chapter before, he's having a conversation with his disciples and he says, Listen, guys. When we go into this capital city, it's going to get rough. They're going to persecute us. They're going to come after me. They're going to sentence me to death, and I'm going to die. But when that happens, I'm going to race from the dead three days later. Now, the disciples had never experienced anything like this. They, they had no context for that. They, they, they didn't know how this was going to play out because they'd never been in this position. 
And in the previous chapter, when Jesus tells his disciples this, it was the third time that he told them this, and they still didn't get it. But can you blame them? No, Jesus, you're not going to die. We've seen you walk on water. Like People who walk on water don't die. Okay? We, we, we've seen you resurrect dead people. Like, like Lazarus was in the tomb dead for four days. And Jesus could have resurrected him the moment he died, but, but it was almost like he was showing off to the Pharisees saying, no, let's wait a little bit. And when we show up, I'm going to resurrect them from the dead so that they know that I'm God. Jesus, we've seen you move in miraculous ways. You've, you've multiplied food. You, you touch people and they're, they're, you're, you're, they're healed. There's no way that you can die. And they didn't understand this part of the promise. That in Genesis 3.15, where, where God speaks the first bit of good news, where he sets this plan in motion that he would rescue us and that he would save us, it says that, that the Messiah would stomp on the serpent's head. This symbolized that he would defeat the enemy, that he would defeat the power of sin, that he would rescue us from eternal death, from condemnation, from shame, but it also came at a price. The scripture also says that this snake will bite back and will bruise your heel. This symbolized the death that Jesus would die on the cross. That would be the ultimate showdown where God defeats all the powers of sin. Where he wages war against the true enemy, not by drawing a sword, but by laying down his life. And what separates Jesus from all other rebels that were trying to overthrow Roman occupation is that when they died on the cross, they remained dead. But when Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. Three days later, proving that he is the victorious promised Messiah, the peaceful king, the glorious father who came to save us and rescue us and redeem us. And how does he do this? By coming into our lives, riding a donkey, bringing peace, not waging war. Jesus is more than capable of rearranging our home environment, rearranging our work environment, and rearranging our school environment, or whatever environment that you're crying out to the Lord, please save me. But those things aren't the true enemy. The true enemy is sin, and he steps into the chaos, into the mess, and he saves us from ourselves. And he comes to save us from guilt, from fear, from hopelessness, and shame. He comes to rescue us from death. So then the question is, what do we do with this? How then shall we live? One of my prayers is that we learn to trust the king. When our lives demand obedience and faithfulness to God, my prayer is that we can trust him without reservations or doubts, even when it gets awkward and confusing like going to get a donkey from a stranger. Like, like, Jesus, let's just keep walking. We don't need this donkey. You're awesome at walking. You know, if he had, you know, Apple Health, his steps would be over 9,000. I don't know. 
miles. He, Jesus could have kept walking into the city. The disciples could have talked them out of it. But they trust the king. Even when this moment looks difficult, weird, strange, how is this going to play out? They trust him. And even in these small details, they lead, lead way to greater significance. In the small moments of our lives, in the details that don't make sense, can we learn to trust the king, that he is sovereign over all of the details, and that he can use every moment of our lives to orchestrate this grand plan of doing something in our lives that we couldn't do on our own. The same way that he used these small details to set into motion a plan that would rescue us and save us and redeem us. Can we trust the king when we're at home and there's dysfunction, there's disconnection, it's, it's busy, and it seems like there's not a free moment? It doesn't slow down. Can we trust the king that he can use those moments to mold us and craft us and develop holiness and make us more like Jesus and draw something out of ourselves that we couldn't draw on our own? Can we trust the king when we're at work and we're tired of the same mundane things that we're doing every day when we're not in good relationship with our boss and we're just ready for the day to be over with? Can we trust the king and maybe come to learn that maybe it's not about us, but it's about the people around us that God wants to use us to touch, to show them who God is? Maybe it's this place where God wants to cultivate character and gratitude and refine us. Not by necessarily moving us to somewhere else, but by using right where we are to draw something out of ourselves that we couldn't do on our own. Can we trust the king with our school students? When you're in class and you're just ready for this thing to be over with, and you might be thinking to yourself, man, once I graduate college and I make the big bucks, it's gonna, everything is going to be okay. I'm not going to struggle the way I struggle. I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to be anxious the way I am once everything is, once I move on and, and get my dream job. And what the Lord wants to teach us is that those things aren't removed when we change environment. They follow us. And the Lord wants to use this moment in your life right now to deliver you from the true enemy. And he's so redemptive and so good and so powerful that he can use mundane things like going to class, doing homework, being a good steward to save you and rescue you and craft Christ-likeness in you. Can we trust the king with the details of our lives that don't make sense? God calls you to go get the donkey. Can we do it with faithfulness? God calls us to be in this place right now. Can we serve with faithfulness? Can we choose faith? Can we choose trust? Can we choose joy? Uh, When I had graduated college, I was in this weird transitionary season uh, waiting to go into full-time ministry, and I was back home, removed and isolated from community. Um, And it was probably one of the darkest, most elusive times uh, of my life that I can remember, 
where I was experiencing hardcore trust issues and I was doubting God and nothing seemed to be playing out the way I expected it. In my mind, I had these expectations for what my life would look like after I graduate college. In my life, I had these expectations for what adulting would be. And man, the Lord just shattered those. <laughs> I said, somebody should write a book about this. And he's like, I, I did. Um, and uh, it was in this season where God really began to expose things in my life where I didn't trust him like I, I thought I did. Or even though I was following him, I still doubted his goodness towards me. And I bought into this lie that, that once I arrive at this place in ministry, or once I arrive at this place in my life, then I'll begin to experience true peace and true joy. And I remember I was sitting at Gil's Broiler with one of my closest friends, and we were eating a Mansky roll. And uh, he's, I, I shared this with him, and he looked me straight in the face, and he said, man, one of the biggest lies that we can buy into is that peace is waiting for us on the other side of whatever you're waiting to accomplish in your life. That peace is waiting for you once you get this job. That peace is waiting for you once the kids get potty trained. That peace is waiting for you uh, once you pass your classes and you're done with school. But in fact, peace is available and it's here right now. And we can experience it right where we are because Jesus had made provision for us to, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through, we can experience the love and the joy and the peace of God if we choose to trust him. And we choose to draw near to him. And, and practically, I thought to myself, okay, well, what does that look like? Um, how do I do that? And it just became a habit of disciplining myself to say, okay, Lord, I choose to trust you. I choose to believe that you're good for me. I choose to believe that even in this chaos, even in the busyness, even when I'm doubting, I can still experience your goodness. And it just became a matter of conforming my mind to believe the truth of Scripture. Jesus comes to bring peace in the midst of chaos. And the crowds... They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, please. Save us from the enemy. And Jesus comes to bring salvation by making peace with God for us so that we can experience eternal joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. Because apart from Jesus, there is no eternal joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. We'll just keep waiting for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Jesus says, I come so that you may have life and life abundantly. I come to save you from your immediate circumstances like no one else can. I come to satisfy you like your job can. I come to satisfy you and fulfill you like no other partner can. I come to give you purpose and meaning. I come to bring you life. And he comes to bring us life by laying down his own life so that we could experience, once again, relationship with God. So when this crowd is singing Hosanna, this phrase used to mean, save us, please. It was a cry to God for help. 
But over a few centuries, this phrase went from being a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews to a shout of hope. It used to mean, save us, please, Lord. We're struggling, we're oppressed, we need you. And it gradually came to mean salvation, salvation, salvation has come. And Hosanna to the son of David means the son of David is our salvation. Hooray for the king. Salvation belongs to the king. So when we sing Hosanna now, we have this hindsight. Jesus just wasn't some other Jewish rebel that was trying to overthrow Roman occupation. He was a different kind of king. He was a king that overthrew sin by dying on the cross. And we know that he's the true king because he rose from the dead, proving that he's God. And this is the firm foundation that our faith is in. That's why now we don't have to sing anymore, Lord, come save us and come deliver us. He has already saved us and he has already delivered us. Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the king who reigns over all the details of our lives, who is not unfamiliar with what we're going through, who is more than capable of delivering us from our immediate circumstances, but love us so much so that he'll let us go through it to draw something out of us that we couldn't draw on our own and bring us to greater purpose, to greater life. Hosanna to that king. That is the type of salvation that we have, and that is the salvation that the Lord has given us. This cry has been answered. God has come. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He has proven himself victorious. He's conquered shame, addiction, fear, and hopelessness. And because of Jesus, we experience peace with God. We sing, Jesus is our king. He is our salvation Salvation belongs to him. Will we trust this king? And will we live for this king? Let's pray as we transition into communion.